Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military Disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. This is the Mentors for Military Podcast. So we're going to dive into this, and I don't quite know how we're going to dive in this. Mike Rutledge is the one that brought this topic up, and a long time ago, Scott Johnson kind of mentioned it to me. Uh, of course, he's not on the show either, but he mentioned it to me. He says, hey, you know, we get a lot of requests or people asking questions about you know, different um, SOCOM units and, and all the different soft specialties and stuff like that. It'd be really cool if we have representation from each one, get on a podcast, and then we can talk about it and figure out, you know, what is it that everybody does and how does it differ? And as we all know, when it comes to Congress or whatever, they're always fighting about who should stay, who should get, you know, the generals are doing that as well, about who should do what mission, how it should fit together and the whole bit. So I think this is a, a really good episode to educate I'm sure we're going to have a whole lot of fun as we go through the show and everything, but it'll give a chance to hopefully educate some of the masses out there about the different tiers, different units, all that kind of good stuff. I'm just going to give you a quick answer right up front. It all comes down to funding, Robert. Yeah. Everybody's competing for the same pot of money, and uh, everybody's trying to get the same missions that's going to deliver the most money so they can get training funds, they can get op funds, they can get everything they they, they, they can do to get their guys into school and then down downrange. And I, I think the pot is so big right now that everybody's got a piece of it. But I mean, at least from my perspective in, in uh, special forces, you see the same types of missions being picked up by the Navy by picked, and being picked up by, by MARSOC. Not so much with the uh, tier one units in the 75th, but where I've last deployed a few times, that's, that's who we had working with us. Looking at the same money. Am I the only one, the only guy in the room? I mean, how many, how many people do you have come up to you and you're, say, You're the only hey. SEAL in the room, yes. Well, <laughs> Wait, that's true. He's gonna he's gonna speak kind of bipolar here too though because he represents the one sixtieth as well. Right, right. So, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But am, am I the only one that has guys come up to him or girls say, "Hey, what's better, Rangers or Special Forces or SEALs?" I'm like, all right, this is beyond the scope of our conversation. I'm like, there's there's so much different things going on. I mean, I have to break it down sometimes. I'm like, do you like living in that shithole that's Fort Benning or do you want to live in? The- <laughs> Like my, two, my girls who want to be talk about my beard, they don't talk about yeah. it. I, I try to tell them, I'm like, it's, it's the same guys. We're in different uniforms. It's too diverse for this conversation. 
you know, you got to break it down for me a little bit. I mean, but I get that all the time. What's better, Rangers or Seals? Or, like, I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's so different. You just kind of kind of pick your quality of life and go with it. They don't know the difference between any of them. I, I mean, they see something in a video game or in a movie, and and let's be honest, the Navy's really good at putting out movies, and and and, and there's a lot of literature out there. So that, that's cool and sexy. So a lot of the kids that I'm working with, kids that I'm coaching and teaching, you know, that that's what they want. The first thing they talk about is, is I want to be a SEAL because it's cool, it's sexy, and everybody knows about it. Uh, and they don't know about some of the other operations uh, that, that different soft units do. And they don't know about other tier, tier one operations. So I, I try to bring that to the conversation and let them start asking questions. You know, not necessarily why do you want to be a Navy SEAL, but what, what do you want to do in the military? What kinds of things do you want to do with your life? You know, what, what, what kind of risk are you willing to accept? And once kids start asking that, you can start directing them in, in, in one way. The way I always try to do it, if it's an Army question, is, is start out in the infantry. Ideally in the 75th, because you're going to get the best experience there. And then you can make an informed decision based on where you want to go once you've been in for a few years. Yeah, that used to be the route. It used to be the, you know, that you'd go infantry, you'd end up going 75th or something like that. You'd make it to E4. You had to make it to E4, if you guys remember back in the day, before you could go into special forces or anything else. And so now they changed all that with the 18 X-ray and, uh, you know, guys being able to get picked up in the Delta right out of uh, selection for SF. Yeah, I did it bass backwards. So I went regular army first and then went to regiment to me once, you know, getting my tab with the 173rd in Vicenza was, was awesome. The only way up to build on that building block was to go to the 75th Ranger regiment. And I saw a lot of professionals too, for them, it was another building block for them. A lot of them would go do their long walk and, or, or they would go SF, you know, it was all depending on what you were looking for in a career. Most of the time, these guys that had eight to 10 years in are looking for that career change or finding that specialty that they're going to stick with throughout the remainder of their career. It's, these guys aren't getting out, you know, next year. So, you know, it, it the regiment became a, a huge building block, you know, or as I would call right of passage into the special operations world. Um especially with direct action and being as busy as we've been in the GWAT, you know, if you, if you wanted to get it on, that was one of the units to go get it. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right about the regiment. Like I have a huge amount of respect for, for Ranger regiment guys. And I, I tell a lot of them like, Hey, here's the deal. If you want to go do something, you're not quite sure. Go straight to rip and go to the Ranger regiment. I said, because yeah. they focus on one thing and they do it badass better than anybody in the world. Like mm-hmm. now, if you don't like rucking and you don't like assaulting, that's not the place for you. Yeah. I got it. I got it explained to me one way is, is what, do you want the hammer or do you want a scalpel? We can do both, but we're notorious for the hammer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, know, we're a we're hundred miles an hour all the time. It, it's, it's yeah. If exactly. the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Life has to be a whole lot better in the 75th though. Now uh, I would think than it was in the cold war era, because those guys, all they did was PT and in the field and training all the damn time. So I'm hoping that, you know, it's gotten better. And they had really bad haircuts, man. <laughs> they did. Uh, that was the, uh, oh, man. shaved. It had to be shaved, you know, every day. Yeah, absolutely. You knew it was yeah. a ranger. It didn't matter whether he was wearing his patrol cap or whether he was wearing a beret. It didn't matter. You knew you could spot him a mile away. Yeah. That Those four haircuts. finger length, that four finger length <laughs> buzz. Nah, <up. laughs> they look cool until you're told to get one right away. Yeah. You know, going to Somalia, <laughs> like cut your hair. You're looking like rangers. And it was like, okay, we'll blend right in until you see that your head's pure white from not ever seeing the sun. 
Yeah. And all the Rangers have nice tan scalps. You know? it's like, well, <laughs> that didn't work out. Plus, our Kevlar's a different color. So I think yeah. it's just a way to get everybody to cut their hair. <laughs> to kind of introduce who's here in representation, as we mentioned at the top here, we don't have anybody from AFSOC or MARSOC, uh, but we've got somebody representing, which is Mike Pritz, representing somebody from Special Forces. We've got Tom Satterley from Delta. And we got Ryan Normandin that's representing 75th Ranger Regiment. And then we've got the notorious Michael Rutledge, who decided that he, he didn't want to be a sailor and he became a 160 a Chinook pilot. So he gets to play both sides of this, but we get to pick on him for being a seal for sure. <laughs> I'm prepared. I'm prepared. Yeah. You knew it was coming. <laughs> we don't pick we don't pick on anybody. I'm yeah. talking about let's kind of go through and and maybe you guys can talk a little bit about your individual training unit, you know, or at least the background and stuff. Mike, we'll let you go first. Pritz. Oh, okay. Um Hey, well, I you spent, could drag this out, Mike, because I've got some book signings and some movie stuff going on later. So, <laughs> so if you kind of maybe to wrap it up quick, because we don't yeah. do much in special forces other than <laughs> hang out in Eastern Europe, party with rock stars. So, no, so I I, I started kind of kind of not bass backwards, I guess, but I I came into the army. I spent six seven years in the conventional forces, and I, I saw that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I'd heard a lot about SF. Uh, honestly, if you talk to my parents, they'll tell you that I. I watched the movie The Green Berets when I was a little kid, and I said uh, at that time when I was probably younger than 10 that that's what I wanted to be. And uh, so that's the route I chose to go in the military. Um, found a recruiter, went to selection. Uh, selection was what at the time about 22, 23 days, not very difficult, a uh, couple days of PT, um, some long-range movements that weren't really very long. When you look at it in hindsight, they tell you it's long at the time, and it might seem long, but in hindsight, you're going to do much longer movements once you're in the, out in the teams. And then uh, on to the Q course, where I was in 18 Charlie. Q course lasted for me about a year, six months of training in small unit tacti- tactics, unconventional warfare, and engineering, and then um, six months of Russian language training. And then I was assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group, where I spent the next 24, 25 years. Uh, 10th special forces group, all, all the, there are five active groups off, off, all the active groups are regionally oriented and oriented by language. I think now it's kind of, kind of a little bit different because a lot of people are taking the, the Arabic language, Arabic, Farsi, and, um, maybe some Pashto to, to be more regionally oriented to where everybody's going. But, um, when I first came out, uh, 10th special forces group was targeted directly onto Europe. And at that time in the, in the mid nineties, Eastern Europe. So I think that's uh, that's really what drew me into it is I thought, I, I mean, I, I lobbied really hard to get into um, 10th Special Forces Group. It wasn't wasn't initially where I was slotted. I was slotted to go to fifth group and slotted to take Arabic, which now in hindsight might have been a, a better choice. Look at where we've been for, for so many years. But I, I was I mean, I was kind of lucky. Um, I did pretty well in the Q course. I was uh, number one in my class. I was the number one NCO in my class. Uh, of all the MOSs, so they allowed me to pick which group I wanted to go to, and they changed my language to Russian, uh, which uh, I think opened up a lot of opportunity for me. Right at the uh, at the time that the wall was falling, uh, I got to go in some pretty cool places out in in Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, but of the other groups, man, I've been retired for over four years now, so I'm gonna have to. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. Seventh group, South America, so Southcom and, and traditionally a Spanish and Portuguese speaking uh, special forces group. Fifth group is and has pretty much always been um, oriented into the Middle East. So uh, Urdu, Pashto, and um, Arabic, modern standard Arabic. First group, 
primarily Asia. I was trying to remember the five Asian languages that we teach, and I don't remember those anymore. I know, I mean, Thai, Tagalog, Korean, maybe Mandarin, and then there's another one out there that I don't remember. And then, hell, I'm missing a whole group. Oh, third group, the, the most the, the most recent uh, group, which has bounced around quite a bit. When I first came into, into Special Forces, they were oriented towards Africa, and uh, their languages were primarily, I think, French. Uh, but they they do I have done for, for a long time the majority of their operations in Africa, and then uh, when the war on terror started, they 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 branched all over Afghanistan for the most part. We took over Africa for a long time because it had been a tenth group responsibility, and now I think that for the most part, third group has taken taken back over the majority of Africa. Uh, what we do primarily is uh, we build partner capacity. Um, just like the movie that drew me into it when I was a, a little kid, uh, we'll deploy a team of green berets into a, into a, an area with a large indigenous force. We'll train and actually go into combat with that force. That's what drew me really into, uh, what I wanted to do as a career in the army, not necessarily, uh, banging targets and doing things on my own. Although I've done that. Um, I think being an expert in the very basics of what, we expect an infantryman to be, and then teaching other armies how to do that and making them better from the very first day that I'm on the ground with them. No matter what they're able to, able to do, you know, I spend a month with them or I spend six months with them. Uh, I've got a plan to make them better by the time I leave. And ultimately, that's the goal of Special Forces. And also part of 1st Special Forces Command is 19th and 20th Group, which some um, people may hear about those. Those are National Guard. Uh, the Reserves had units back in the day, but they were... Uh, Rolled into 19th and 20th, but they have some of the similar missions and they end up partnering up a lot with third group and with other groups. Really? So you think about it, in, in, in when GWAT kicked off, we opened up entire companies in SF battalions that were uh, manned by our local uh, brothers that are, that are from here in Colorado from the 19th group. Um, so every company, every battalion had a fourth company, a Delta company that stood up and was a, a National Guard company. And, um, and, and they, they performed and did very, very well with us. I was working initially when it's kicked off at, uh, SWIC. So I was an instructor out of the Q course when, um, nine 11 happened. And for the year, right after that, we brought several, uh, individuals out and, and they kind of stood up on their own, started running portions of the Q course, kind of the same as they, they work with a group, not, not quite the same anymore. Although at least here in 10th group, we do roll in the, the, um, I think it's 4th Battalion, 19th group up there in Watson, Colorado, that uh, they come into our command and staff. They 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 do training with us, they do PMT and everything as we're gearing up for deployment. So they, they kind of stay really tied in with At least in 10th group, they stay tied in with us. Well, then uh, we'll roll into the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment. Yeah, um, so my career started out not bass backwards, but at the bottom. I just I, I was coming in for college money in and out. You know, I, I was never going to do the Army. Um I was going to take from it what I could and get out. And uh, went, I was a 12 Bravo, so I'm a combat engineer. I'm driving APCs in Germany and wild flick in Germany for three years. And oh, when the wall was wall was, st- yeah. Yeah, and the wall was still up, and I, I, I mean, I drove over to Berlin one time through East Germany. I mean, that was my excitement over there. But went to several schools over there, which, which kind of whetted my appetite. So I decided to go special forces in the bear program, which I missed because I didn't have PLDC. I was already E5, so they wouldn't send me. It was no rush, so I couldn't get it. So I just re-enlisted for jump school just to get to Fort Bragg to get, become a Green Beret. And uh, that's about as long as I did it, the Q course. Six, you know, SFAS, six months as an 18 Charlie, the Q course, 
And then I went to three months of Persian Farsi, which I couldn't say anything other than some <laughs> vulgar terms, and uh, which never leave my mind. I could order a beer and call somebody a name. But other than that, nothing stuck. And I was actually in language school when I was approached by a couple of guys from the unit that said, hey, you should try out for the unit. I think you'd do all right. They were in the Q course with me. I was like, yeah, sure, what's that? I'll do that. And so I went to selection, literally got to fifth group when they were deployed for the first Gulf War. So they were gone. So people are like, oh, you're in fifth group. Do you know so-and-so? I'm like, I know two people, Sergeant Major Sims and Sergeant Major Simon. That's about it. And that's only because they, they you know, hassled me for a bit. Um, went to selection in 91, spring of 91, and uh, made it. Went back to fifth group. They had just redeployed, and I was in second battalion. They're like, hey, who are you? And I'm like, don't worry. I'm heading out the door. So packed my bags, went right back to Fort Bragg, um, literally less than six months after I got to Fort Campbell. So some guys ask me, you know, oh, Special Forces, what's that? You got to do the whole Green Beret. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Green Berets. Those guys are cool. But what's Special Forces? I'm like, yeah, okay, <laughs> never mind. Don't even try to go Special Operations with those people. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I went to OTC, Selection OTC, and made it and uh, spent 20 years there until I retired in 2010. So a lot of my stuff might be dated. Our primary mission, well, everybody's changed after the you know war on terror started. That was everybody's direct action nowadays. And uh, I think we're trying to get back to our legacy tasks. Everybody's trying to go back to what they're good at so they can get good at it again versus just kicking in everybody's doors. But our mission, once it's spread out, made it really rough. I mean, everybody added a fourth something. We added a fourth squadron. I got to stand that up as my last uh, final act, stand up D squadron, but never got to deploy with them. But uh, those jobs always suck. You move up, you sit behind a desk more, you don't kick indoors, which is what you really wanted to do. So you're kind of just giving back. But those missions have always been hostage rescue or DA in the form of HVTs, you know, high value targets, whatever that may be. So let's talk about how our uh, it was hostage rescue or high value targets. So you get those missions direct from the Joint Chiefs down to us and guys will blow out. And it really took a toll, the war on terror. Um, just constant deployments and then going everybody everybody wants those missions like you were talking about so they get more money we're the same way you got to do more missions so we're saying yes we'll go here yes we'll go there yes we'll go over here you know all over the world in small groups large groups we start mingling with every other unit out there which is great i think it was great for us but we were we weren't designed for that you know in and out even even Somalia, 18 hours about it devastated us you know now iraq three months at a time we're still in and out but now we had two tanks and two Bradleys. We had a Rangers, you know, company with us. We worked with the SF guys over there. Um, so we were working with everybody. And then fusion cells started up. So you needed more people to go sit in those fusion cells everywhere. Um, it didn't decimate us. I think it it made the unit better, even though everybody's resistant to doing something different, moving up and giving back and being in a leadership role. But those guys kind of rise to the top anyway, because not everybody can do that. Not everybody can be the leader or blend in with another element. And not act like you're you're the best. I mean, that's that's what everybody has in their units. You know, you gotta play nice, act nice, and and you can't go in thinking you're the best. It doesn't matter. You're different. It doesn't make you the best at anything. Um, but w when you're going through Delta, how long is that um, selection course? How long could it be? It's it's about a month. It's a little under a month, and uh, it, it starts out with like every other one with the admin phase. You know, your paperwork, your PT test. Um, no longer swim test. And uh, then you do, you do, you know, you do a ruck march. They take that average and guys are dropping the whole time. And then you go through the instructional phase where they teach you everything you need to know. 
and then they let you practice what they taught you with the cadre, and then they remove the cadre, and they let you practice. And then you roll into the stress phase where your weights are going up. They give you an orange rubber rifle with no sling on it and tell you never to leave it behind. Of course, you've been operating without it for a couple of weeks, so a lot of guys left that behind. They had to go back and get it. The selection process is more of an individual thing. It's not stress. It's not harassment. Everything you bring on yourself, you, you bring it on. All that stress is self-induced. So they literally write down on the board what you're supposed to do every day. They feed you. They feed you excellent food. They take care of you. Get plenty of sleep, and then they just throw you through the ringer and see what you do. And uh, SF selection, SFAS, was more team event oriented. Um, kind of like you're going to operate. I mean, not like the unit operates in singletons, but that's how they that's how they choose to do their selection, you know. And SF selection is more like how are you going to work with other guys in a group as well. And those team events would beat your butt. So uh, to me, it was harder in a different way. SFAS was harder in a different way than unit selection. That's more of a amount. Land navigation is the tool that they use to judge leadership, critical thinking, um, and how you manage stress. Because you're either going to be lost or you've been lost before. And you know you're going to get lost again. How do you manage that under the clock, knowing you're going to get pulled at any time? You know, a lot of guys make that problem worse by freaking out and just running in the wrong direction for a couple of days. And you got to chase them down. But I think those selections, uh, people have asked me, what's better? Who's better? And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you want to get done? You know, yeah. unit guys can CQB and shoot. And if I had to learn CQB, everybody can do CQB nowadays. It's just ask them. And everybody can shoot. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, the unit and I've seen them all, and I worked with them all now, you can't outshoot the unit. You can't, individuals can't, sure, but as a whole, you can't outshoot the unit. You're not going to out-CQB the unit, and you're not going to have that level of thinking because they've been allowed to do that. Um, I can't I can't talk about SF. I wasn't in it. I'm sure there are a lot of guys go out and do 12-man teams. They do critical thinking. They have to do their own thing, too. So, But, but you're right, Tom. It's a tool, right? Right, What What exactly. tool do you need to get the job done? It's like It's like anything else you're going to do in life. And, and or, or I mean, think of just working on your car. What tool do you need to get the job done? If you pick the wrong tool, you're not going to be successful. And, and what we do, if you pick the wrong tool, you know, working on your car, you're not going to be able to get it done. So that's why I think it's great that that I mean, although all of us are competing for the same pot of money and we're all trying to get into the same missions with a, a little bit different skill set, I, I think that for some missions, one unit is probably better than others, and that goes across all branches of service. I agree. I think the problem is most of us or our leadership thinks that we're all multi-tools. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything. You know, that's, that's the that's the big problem. I mean, it's not at the operator level. I think sometimes it's the leadership. Like, yeah, my guys can do that. Go train up for it. Oh, yeah. They were fighting for targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is it, is it six? Is it the unit? Is it SF? Well, well, let's send, you know, six in and do hostage rescue, you know, on top of a mountain somewhere. Yeah, well, you're not going to send the unit on a on a ship somewhere. I mean, they used to try to do that stuff, and they kind of took that away and gave us brown water. But yeah, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that, so I don't care that they're better at it than me. I, why would anybody? Who cares? Do your job and be good at your job. Who gives a shit about anybody else's job? We make fun of each other, right? I mean, that's fun. <laughs> I, I, I can give you. I can give you kind of a specific anecdote where where I turned a, I had to turn a battalion commander off. Uh, to something that we had. We had Intel coming in. This is 2004. That AMZ was in an area right outside of uh, Bakuba, Iraq, where ultimately a year later he was killed, right? Um, so we had, we had Intel that was coming in. There's a Jordanian operating in this particular city. I had a, a target building that was located. I had multiple uh, different intelligence sources that were confirming this. 
And all I wanted to do was spin up some type of ISR to confirm or deny that, that this location was hot. And then probably send that to the National Mission Force because that's the level target that they service. And I, I got this thing that comes back from, from my battalion commander, who's a great guy, but trying to think, like Mike said, you know, my guys can do anything. Hey, I can spend up, I can get DAPs to you guys. I can get, you know, MH60s. You, can you guys fast rope in on top of that building tonight? And I'm like, well, probably, yeah. Threw you in front of the podium, didn't he? But, I, but I've, never, <laughs> I've, I've never taken this team and fast rope at 2 o'clock in the morning on top of a building with armed assailants on top of the building, right? Mm. RPGs. I mean, we know that's there. Our, our in, intel's telling us it's there. I'm like, yeah. guys, there's there's an organization that does this. Like, like they're the NFL. And, and you're wanting to send in my freshman football team. No, this is not the way it's done. Um, you're going to learn today. We're out there saying, no, 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 send those guys. You're going to learn today. It's going to be hot as hell. Send those guys in, man. Yeah. So I just, hey, spin up ISR. And you know what? The unit gave us 30 minutes. 30 minutes of ISR. There was nothing hot on the building. Nobody went in there. And, you know, I think a year, year and a half later, they put two 500-pounders on top of the guy. Um, really close to where we thought he was. So I think we were onto something. But just to go what you said, you know, it's, man, it's that's not our job. That is not our job. It sounds great until you get 12 guys killed. Well, people will tell you, though, oh, well, you guys must be the best. You, you, you got AMZ. You got, you got, you know, Sodom. You got his sons. Yeah. Oh, yeah, all by ourselves we did. Sure, thanks. Yeah, we are the best. No, your <laughs> intel led to other intel, you know, and it all spins and goes and people pick up on it. And a lot of it's just luck of the draw. I don't care who rolled the people up. I, I was hoping to get rolled up at a traffic stop somewhere by the cops. Who cares? Get them off the street. I mean, there's guys that I want to get them. I'm going to be the one to get them. Sure, so you can get a star or next rank or whatever. But, I mean, are we here just to catch the bad guys? Man, I don't give a shit who does it, really. You know? Yeah. Well, let's go yeah. now into uh, 75th. 75th is everything that it says it is. Uh, direct action raid force wheels up in 18 hours or less. Our, our key and what we pride ourselves on is airfield seizure. You know what I mean? <laughs> Was Did that I, Tom? Wait, do you guys still do airfield seizure? Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I thought so, you gave that up with the GWAT. No, we're still Eight, doing it. 18 hours, huh? Wow. 18 hours. <laughs> you, could build, you could build several cars in that time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it, no, but uh, I mean, it, it, it was everything... It, when I came in, um, being in the 173rd and being a paratrooper was, you know, right into the resurge into Afghanistan. Like everyone had been focalized on Iraq. We surged in 07, 08 and did a 15 month deployment with that unit. And I don't know, going, going to Ranger school, it just seemed like the, the only way, it, like I said, it was a, a foundation, a building block. I wanted more. I wasn't I wanted to do more um, operationally. Um, I ended up spending two deployments with 173rd after going to Ranger School, and it was, hey, let's let me take. The, it was either go green or, or go tan. <laughs> to me, it, one was one was different. One was learning a special trade set, becoming a, what I would call a teacher, um, working with indigenous forces. To me, I wanted to be more direct action, so. You know, I chose the 75th Ranger Regiment and the 75th Ranger Regiment, you're constantly being assessed and selected. Uh, there isn't any one person that stays there without, you know, constantly being assessed and selected. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on being a premier infantry unit. And uh, 
you know, the sele- selection process was you, you learn a lot. It puts everybody on the same page again. Um, now that it's not even rip anymore, it's rasp. So you can do rasp, which is eight weeks long. I went through their eight week program. Um, the second phase of that school, the last four weeks of it key on, um, certain skill level one tasks or ranger tasks that will set us up for success overseas with the GWAT picking up so much. And we always being forward deployed, uh, rasp has given more tasking and more education to our young rangers coming in so they can move forward and we don't spend time reteaching that um they're getting set up for success put it that way so you think of the first part of selection the first four weeks is going to be your physical test your rap week your pt tests um check on learning the the second phase is going to be where you learn your mobility you learn your marksmanship um pistol and rifle as well breaching small unit tasks, TACMED, RFR. I mean, Ranger Regiment prides themselves on RFR, our, our Ranger first responder, being knowledgeable about how to work on your work on your guys should you take a casualty, care under fire. Hey, Ryan. Um, yeah, yes, sir. Let me ask you a question about RIP and RASP. One, I just, yeah. uh, I don't, I didn't understand it. So you got Ranger school. Guys, you should just go to Ranger school. Yes, correct. You made it or you didn't. Um, yeah. Or you got recycled until you made it or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. Per, per phase. Then they started RIP mm-hmm. to get people ready for Ranger School. Right? Mm, no. Like, why, why did they start RIP? Was it because they had too many dropping out of Ranger School and then they changed it to RASP? No. So, so RIP and Ranger School are different things. RIP is the Ranger Indoctrination Program. In order to get to a special operations unit in the 75th Ranger Regiment, you have to go through RIP. Now they've changed it to RASP, just different name, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. Still the same program, extended by four weeks, so you have two different phases. RIP, you just used to be 30 days, and that was their selection, their indoctrination into the 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay. Now, Ranger School, in order to stay in battalion, in order to stay in the regiment, you have to complete the Army's Premier Leadership School, which is Ranger School. So anyone can go um, and try out for. I'm sorry, rap. that sounded like marketing. The Army's <laughs> premier range, leadership school. Ranger school. Ranger you know, school. And you know, a lot of people <laughs> actually fight you on that, Ryan, because they'll say yeah. that uh, you don't really teach leadership there. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's all B-Noc, small unit. <laughs> yeah, Knocker PLDC does that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, lot more small unit tactics, all your battle drills coming up with, you know, our, our doctrination of how to do war nose and I'm just giving you, you a hard you, time. You did it. I know you, I know you are, <laughs> but you know, the, the biggest misconception is, is that it, people ask, you know, what the difference between the Ranger tab and the scroll, mm. you know, people mm. are like, Oh, I'm, I'm a Ranger. Well, were you, were you in Ranger battalion? No, I was Ranger qualified. Qualified is from the school. Um, the scroll is from the actual unit itself. Two different things, and you have to complete both to stay. So, so what I was talking about might be pre-ranger then that other units just set yes. up, put get Pre- you in shape so they don't get internal. embarrassed when you get kicked out right away. Yeah, internal. Okay. Yeah, you can do internal unit um, pre-rangers throughout the unit. So okay. Yep. Explain a little bit more about the difference then, let's say, between Rangers and Special Forces. Like we just went through these other two units. So what's the difference between you guys and them when it comes to the mission set? So, um, like I said, Ranger Battalion, it, we we are direct action. Um, 
killer capture missions the way they see fit, whatever battle space that we take over. We're hitting all the targets we can, whether it's compiled from special forces, guys that are building target packages, even our Marine counterparts, uh, all these units that are deployed forward to out on to individual fobs, all their patterns of life and everything that they've conducted in their research to develop a target package, we can go and exercise at night. That That's what we do is day in, day out, um, night or day, land, sea, or air, where yeah. we're hitting. You know what I saw when I didn't know anything about Rangers other than I didn't want to go to Ranger school when I when I found out about it was was in Somalia Rangers and even even in Iraq mm-hmm. Somalia Rangers were there as a external guard basically large number of infantry guys high, higher trained than regular infantry guys yeah. to keep people away from the target yeah so that's that was okay you Rangers surround it we'll go do the work and we'll come back mm-hmm. out you know so go yeah. to Iraq same thing we bring the rangers mm-hmm. with us, external security, yeah. roadblocks, set up signs, barbed yeah. wire, and then, you know, lots of guns there. And then we were so busy. And and with the new devices that we had when we were tracking people, it was such a, a large area at the time. Mm-hmm. Would hit a house. Oh, here's the house that we call ours. And then maybe the one left and right. Well, you got blocks of homes. The rangers surrounding it. Well, those people are waiting 30, 40 minutes before we get to their house and hit it. Well, just let the Rangers hit that one. Or let them, it morphs into as more of a force instead of just security. Yeah. And I saw that morphous, metamorphosis happening. I was like, this is pretty cool. And then guys start getting mad. Rangers are CQBing now and growing hair. And I'm like, here we go. You know, here it happens. Well, I think the development of the program and how it's moved forward is because we were working with different entities under under SOCOM. You know, we we had a lot of missions where we were attached to the unit or we'd be attached to uh, some SEAL teams. Um, everyone was fighting the same fight and we were learning from each other, especially when you have, uh, you know, unit guys and SEALs that, you know, we're, we're learning things as we go. Uh, a lot of the time, too, we Rangers ended up being your containment on targets so you guys could concentrate on the mission. You know, we were your support by fires. We were, we were controlling all your vehicles. We were a force multiplier for you. So you could concentrate on what the higher echelons and what the higher units were doing to make sure that for target success, you know, it's more to have all your assaulters on one page and have us worry about the outside containment. But overall we were learning from each other and all that knowledge kind of trickled down to where, yeah, I mean, people get mad that yo rangers are doing cqb now we do it all the time i mean it's it, we learned from y'all and it was a great umbrella tool we got a lot of yep. great guys in the unit from that yep. and from that that joining together coming down to our house and planning together and prepping together and going on yep. missions together yep. you start trusting them more you give them more targets you know and yep and they're a bunch of gung-ho kids man they're going yep. at it you know yeah Yep. Well, and that seems yep. to be what's always been the case is that, uh, I mean, let's face it, Ranger Regiment has been a pipeline for a lot of the, the other, you know, SF or Delta. And, mm-hmm. uh, but then again, it's also, I think, more difficult, at least that's what I used to hear in the past, for a lot of Ranger guys to go through SF because it's a different, it, it's, it's a different it, mentality as well. It's a different approach, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, for what it's worth, Ryan, I told both my teenage sons, I'm like, hey, man, I'd, I'd rather you go be a ranger private in the regiment than a captain in the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> True. Don't, don't talk about living conditions, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Well, maybe this would be a good segue into you, Mike. Yeah, and so the problem is uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak as articulately as I can on the SEAL teams, but you got to remember my information is a little bit dated. 
Um, I just happen to be what you got. I'm not what you need. I'm what you got. Um, so, I mean, I left the SEAL teams in 2002, right after the first deployment uh, to Afghanistan. But uh, a lot of people forget because, uh, like Mike had indicated, every, everybody's doing direct action now. It's just the way it is. To include, you know, like I said, Air Force guys, Marine infantry. I mean, everybody's doing direct action because there's a there's a need for it and there's the volume of targets. Um, but historically, you know, the SEAL teams came from the underwater demolition teams, and the bread and butter has always been, you know, littoral regions, offshore, basically waterborne operations. Um, I mean, I distinctly remember, you know, part of our year-long workups prior to deployment of that year, we would have about a month and a half that were strictly you know, land warfare operations. It was just a part of the workup. You know, it was also supplemented by another two months of CQB or whatever with recurrence uh, training, but it was not a, a bread and butter. You know, we spent a heck of a lot more time diving and doing limpet mines and shipboardings and that kind of stuff that we were historically- Marops, doing Marops, yeah, yeah. climbing, climbing working, you know- Working with dolphins. Platforms. Yeah, working with dolphins. Can we talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about the dolphin program? Yeah. So I will do a side. So the only time I ever really got scared underwater, I have to break into a story because my family giggles about it all the time. So they had the dolphins out there and the dolphins apparently, you know, they get fish if they make a diver surface. Now they've gotten rid of the dolphin program completely. So I can a little bit out of the bag, but you know, they put stuff on their nose and they like, they're trained to go stab enemy divers. Well, they let the dolphins out. We were diving one night and they're like, Hey, check it out. They're like, no, hey, no, we don't no, need- no, 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 yeah. no. They're like, flipper, we don't need to put flipper. any. Yeah, they're like, we don't need to put any. Uh, we don't need to put any op four and boats. We got the dolphins out tonight, so we'll, we'll look, it's flipper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're cheating. So we got this dive buddy on Drager. You know, we're tied together by a chain, and we know the dolphins are out there. And all you hear is this little, and it just echoes in the water. So you're like kicking like hell, trying to go as fast as you can to get to that boat and plant your mine and get out of there. And these little echoes of dolphins get louder and louder. And, and all of a sudden, you just see like this shadow zip in front of you. And you're like, damn it. He's coming. And you just start kicking faster and faster. And you're not even, you just take this mine off your buddy's back. You slap it on somewhere on the ship and you're trying to get out. Because they said, if you can get under the piers, the dolphins won't go under the piers. So we're hauling ass trying to get these piers. Then you get a, little, you get a little tap on the side. You're like, oh my God, he's coming. He's coming. <laughs> They don't get their fish unless you surface. It's a weird, weird bar story. I get what oh, you man. do tonight. I got buzzed kicking, by a dolphin. Yeah, kicking faster, faster. You come and hit you again, and finally, he just hits you so hard you can't help it. You just got to surface, like you rat bastard. Anyway, that's why I'm, I was never a seal. I don't like animals in the water, man. I don't care how cute they look. Hate oh, the dolphins. So anyway, came from the water, and of course, you know, we did our supplement of land warfare stuff, and and at the time, you got to remember too. We're also very isolated. I think we in this room, we all agree before 9-11, it was my unit's the best and everyone else sucks because we hardly ever worked together. I mean, it was very rare. So you thought your little sphere of influence was the best thing going and SF suck and the Rangers suck because really at that stage of my career, I couldn't tell you exactly what Rangers did. I couldn't tell you exactly what Special Forces did except for FID, you know, and I couldn't even adequately explain that. So um, 9-11, while catastrophic, did a lot, I think, to bring bring all the different teams together um you know and like mike said you know perhaps we got in some stuff that initially weren't really trained for but you know now you've got seals doing da's constantly and just getting in the water to keep their currency um i think the leadership of the seal teams now you'll find uh, they've made a resurgence on hey we need to get back to the water we need to get back to our core competencies 
Um, because other than the Middle East, you know, different target sets and threats are, are evolving around the globe that, that have to do with being offshore capability. Um, but, you know, through all the various plethora of books and movies, everyone knows, you know, Bud's is six months long. And what? Wait, I six? I thought it was like five years. I mean, I swear, every time I see the post out there, you would think Bud's is at least four or five years long. Yeah, well, it's... It takes the, them that long to get through the six-month program. That's the <laughs> that's Most the people are doctors, It's those damn dolphins. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's six months. And and what people forget, too, is if you go to MARSOC, Ranger Regiment, the Q course, whatever, you're coming from a service that is sort of infantry-minded in its core. And, and the big difference with the Navy is, you know, you can go to Bud's, but you have may have you may have been a, a submariner. You may have been scraping paint on a carrier somewhere. I mean, you may have never held a weapon in your life except for, you know, a qualification in boot camp. And so you're in Bud's. And, and a lot of people get too. Q course, you learn something. In in Ranger School and certainly in RASP, I mean, you learn the core skills you're going to take with you into your company or battalion. But Bud's is just getting your ass kicked for six months. I mean, it's truly yeah. physical. You don't learn anything. I mean, you learn how to row a boat, you learn how to dive, and you learn how to put on a uh, a life preserver. You know, but you really—it's really just a gut check. And yeah. most of your learning takes place in a follow-on training called SEAL tactical training, which is at the group level, and then onto your team. So a lot of it is is OJT, and it's just a different mentality than the other services. Not right or wrong, it's just different, and that's kind of a historical holdover for the way we've always done it. Let's you know? face it, early GWAT, though, I mean, SEALs didn't really have that training. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you guys end up doing came much later after working with some of the other branches. Yeah, it kind of like you're going right back to the, the right tools for the job. I mean, they, they did it, and a lot of stuff they did really well, but it was always a really steep learning curve, you know, and you'd prefer not to have to learn your lessons in the field. You'd like a little heads up on that. Um, Take, you know, like, I mean, test equipment to combat. Yeah, it, it just wasn't. Uh, I mean, certainly they've they've kind of overcome that and accelerated. But now everyone's realized, hey, we need to get back to the water. Um, you know, and Mike said at the beginning, it's it's truly the right tool for the job. And I, I kind of said it in jest at the beginning of when kids come and say, hey, what's better, special forces or rangers or seals? And and I always tell them, I'm like, well, what do you want to do? They're completely yeah. different, and yeah. and you need to get educated on on the difference between what the different services, you know, what the different special operations forces do. But it's, it's different. And so I'll always ask them, well, what do you like to do? You know, if you yeah. if you don't like rucking day in and day out, the Ranger Regiment's not for you. If you don't enjoy swimming, you probably shouldn't go to BUDS. So SEAL teams, BUDS is six months long, and then you go through six months of SEAL tactical training. And that's where the beatings lessen to a degree, you know, the physical harassment. And they're more interested in teaching, all right, these are the finer points of weapons handling, demolition, you know, land navigation, CQB, diving tactics you're actually learning some at that point and then once you get to your team whichever team it may be then you are put into a deployable element which is a platoon or a task unit and that's changed several times in the last decade as well just because when i was at the seal teams we deployed in a platoon which was 13 to 16 guys and each team was geographically oriented seal team one had southeast asia seal team three had uh the desert you know, the East Coast had Europe and various other places. So that was where you focused on, and it was pretty useful. After 9-11, now the entire team deploys as a task unit and will take, you know, an entire yeah, region. Yeah. So yeah. completely different now. And I couldn't speak real intelligently on how they run business right now. I'll let somebody smarter than me do that. But the fact is you learn most of your tactics and your experience in the teams. And, and I'm not sure how it is 
with the rest of the uh, special operations forces. But I know for a fact there's enough skill. As a new guy, there's enough skills and enough learning curve going on that we really didn't consider you seasoned or kind of autonomous. About five years on a team was about when you'd seen enough things that you were you were kind of an experienced operator and that you could be of value to the team unilaterally. Um, you know, before that, you still had maybe not seen a lot of maritime stuff or, hey, you hadn't done shipboardings or, you know, just a lot of things that you hadn't seen. So I, I think that kind of goes regardless of services. This five years is about, that's about it. I mean, if you guys agree, somewhere in there, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah what I've noticed with the, with like the white side seals is like you talked about the land warfare thing. It's not ingrained in them from, from birth, if you will. So they have to learn it and they do it every year and they're retraining every year. They go through the same thing, learning how to patrol and stuff, stuff that a lot of the, the land-based guys, it's just, it came at basic training. I mean, it was just from the moment I started, I knew how to carry a gun and walk through the woods and, and do it properly in formation. Um, not like at a level of ranger school, you know, you don't really go to that. I, I didn't go to that school. So all the other stuff came from rangers and SF guys, but, um, they don't get that. So you see that they lack in, they, they're lacking in that. And then when they deploy, here's your intel person. They've been on a ship for six months and now they're yours. They haven't worked together ever. Right before they deploy, they get all their enablers and they have to learn how to work together. I'm like, you guys are already starting deficient. I mean, you don't know your people. You don't know if they're good. And sometimes they're not. They've done intel on a ship for two, three, four years. And now they're intel for these guys. It's a totally different ball game. Yeah, it is, and uh, and that comes, I think, sometimes from being not affiliated with a service, honestly, that's not ground combat related. It, sometimes it's a hindrance. Now, the one thing I will say that I always appreciate about SEAL teams, and it's not a ding on the Army or anything, is we all know that the Army Marine Corps very rigid. Everything's published. You know, there's the way you go about business, and I'm familiar with it being in the 160th for 14 years. There's just a way you do about business, and you've got a standard, and it, it doesn't always go that way, but it gives you something to deviate from. Um, one thing I always appreciate in SEAL teams is much like, uh, any good corporation, I guess, a lot of times it was never, this is how you're going to do things based on this reference. It was, this is the end state we want. Use your creativity. How are you going to execute it? And, you know, it, obviously that takes some maturity to be able to handle that correctly. Um, but, but handled correctly, it does reveal some, some pretty interesting solutions out of the box solutions and thinking on stuff. So that is one advantage i think that the seal teams have always had is is flexibility because not being affiliated with a a land-based um service there's there's a lot of things that they're not handcuffed by i guess if that makes any sense mike maybe it'll be good too to talk a little bit about dev grew uh you know, a lot of uh, kids read about naval special uh special warfare development group and they hear about it you know referred to as SEAL team six those types of things and and i think there's a confusion too or could be at times about dev grew and delta and how those might be different and there is and of course without getting too much into that that part of it obviously you know, Naval Special Warfare Development Group and Delta, they serve a very specific purpose, very, very specific purpose, very, very highly trained. Um, and that's the difference is there is no, um, you know, you're not trying to master 20 different tactical tasks. Very, very specific. Um, now, for the SEAL teams, and I, I was never in DevGuru, so I'm not going to go too deep into it more than just what's open source knowledge. Um, but every operator at SEAL Team 6 is drawn from someone who's already operating in a SEAL team. Um, it used to be they had to have two deployments or four or five years experience somewhere in there. 
before they could even screen or, or assess for the unit. Um, but there's no magic secret sauce to it. You know, literally it's, do you want to assess for dev group? Yes. Here's when they're assessing, go take the assessment. If you assess positively, you went to the unit and you did their, their six month, uh, green team program and all that's entailed in that. And then you go to your squadron. Um, I think there's a difference in that, you know, like Jeff was saying, you could, you could be a tank driver or a cook or something like that. And you can go screen for the unit and go on, but you did have some sort of a, an infantry or common knowledge background, but that's the way you get the dev group. And, you know, people say, well, that's the best team. It's not the best team. It's, it's a team with a very, very specific purpose. There's some certainly very tough, very focused and legendary Americans doing that job. It's because they chose and they volunteered to do that job. Um, so there's no best or worst or, you know, everybody's got a responsibility. And of course, I think as we all get older, I kind of laugh. I didn't have that vision when I was younger. You got to get some miles behind you and some perspective yep. to realize that, yep. hey, everybody's doing a cool job. Just like Jeff said, dude, I don't care. Just get that turd off the street. I don't care who does it. You know, I can yep. get the Oklahoma guard. I hope they get him. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't think that 15 years ago. It was completely different. Yeah. You mean Tom? Huh? You I'm said, sorry, Tom. Yeah. Tom. what I do? Yeah. Oh, I heard you right. We all had the same deck of cards. You know what I mean? It didn't matter who who did it. We all had the same deck of cards. I just, but I did hear that six selection was a picture of the guy. If you know him, and he's got good hair and a good set of abs, right? (laughs) I have no doubt, but but you got to remember. I mean, there's there's a standard to uphold. I mean, there's there's a lot of bars where people are expecting to see him. You know, they're expecting to see something, and you can't. You can't fall short of that. There's some responsibility. They're, to they're expecting to see abs. That's what they're expecting yeah. to see. He's Marky Mark abs. Funny, a funny story. We were we were doing uh, one of the SEAL teams, uh, maybe four, I don't know. But we had them at a Charleston, and they were at the old VA hospital there, and we shut the elevator down. But the embassy on the top floor, of course, they land, and they entered through the ground floor. I marked it off, so it was amazing. It was horrible. They had to go up like 10 flights of stairs just to get to the embassy on top. And my wife's videoing this whole exercise for ARs. And she's like, I sent her from the top. Hey, go downstairs and, and grab some stuff, you know. And she's going down the elevator. She hears people coming, so she sets up the camera. I'm going to catch some cool seals coming up the stairs, you know. And they turn the corner, bent over, grabbing the rails and dragging their ass up. And then they, they look up and they see the they see the camera and they start springing two steps at a time. <laughs> hooking it up, man. That's she's not like, true. There's no way to late. Too late. Already caught it on film. <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, I love it. Uh, I'm going to hold off all my stories. Now, see, what you guys forget, though, I've been flying all you turkeys for 14 years. I've seen every one of you guys screw stuff up, but I'm going to keep that all to myself because everybody. I'm a co-host here and I don't want to get fired. <laughs> everybody, everybody needs a bus driver. Uh, so... So maybe this would good be a good time too then uh, for you, Mike, to talk about one sixtieth and what they do. So one sixtieth obviously is uh, the world's premier assault helicopter unit, um, unique only the Army. It's actually the only special operations helicopter element within the United States Army. But we service all services, um, all offices, civilian, military, um, and our bread and butter is literally putting assaulters on target. We don't sling load things. We don't carry cargo. Um, we fly very specialized helicopters, uh, MH-47Gs, uh, a couple different models of the MH-60, AH-6, 
um, and MH6 little birds. And then we also have uh, a couple, three companies now of UAVs, uh, predators and, and bigger than that. Um, but our sole focus uh, is customer service. And it was interesting coming from the SEAL teams of having a very singular mindset. And I went from the SEAL teams to flight school straight to the 160. So I had a singular mindset on, on what I thought all the different services did. Um, but being in the regiment and you're like, hey, I don't care who gets in the helicopter. They're getting anywhere in the world, plus or minus 30 seconds. And, you know, reliability and guaranteed that they're going to get pulled out. But also, just like any of the assault forces, people think that pilots in the 160th are, you know, super pilots and all that kind of stuff. And absolutely not. Uh, there was a, a lieutenant colonel that was a really good friend of mine, um, Sapansky. And I don't know if he's still in the Army. I think he might be. But uh, when he was a captain, he's like, hey, the difference with the regiment is, he goes, we don't have super people. We're just resourced for success. And that's true. Um you know, they're given the aircraft and the training time and the focus to make sure that everything we do is no fail. And the one cool thing that I will say that drives the regiment's success as far as reliability is the fact that from the day you walk in the door at the 160th to start Green Platoon um, or even to do your assessment and throughout your entire time there, it never changed in 13 and a half years was your sole purpose here is to be reliable for the customers, no matter who they are, and get them any place they want to go and make sure that they know you're going to get them out. And everything from the lowest supply specialist to the regiment commander, you know, they know that. If you're not doing your job, we're going to make you go away and we're going to find someone else who's willing to do it. Um, and so that that's pretty powerful. When you you have your singular singular focus is on the customers you serve, that kind of drives drives a lot of your the way you conduct your business and the way you plan and the way you fly yeah. and the decisions that you make. Um, so to be a night stalker, um, it's pretty easy. It's not as difficult. People say, oh my gosh, how to be a night stalker? I'm like, well, you just got to ask. That's all you got to do. Like everyone else, all you have to do is ask and sign up on the dotted line. They have green platoon classes. You'll fill out an application. They'll do an initial assessment whether or not you're suited to, to come try out. Um, the assessment itself is in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and it's a week long. And it, it, basically screens everything from your physical fitness to how you swim to how many pull-ups you can do to your general aeronautical knowledge as a pilot. Um, and enlisted have their own screening process as well for all the different MOSs. Um, but I'm speaking specifically on the, the pilot side to how can you handle an aircraft. Even if you've never, ever seen an MH-47 before, you're going to take a check ride in MH-47. And it's not so much that they expect you to know that aircraft. It's, um, you know, like the other guys were talking about is, Okay, you don't know the aircraft. Are you going to freak out or are you going to work it out? And a lot of times what's really interesting is people think, oh, my gosh, I didn't make the target. I'm not going to make it. And if you ever talk, uh, I've done a couple couple assessment check rides as well. And at the end of it, when you're grading somebody, you're like, well, yeah, he didn't fly exceptionally well. He didn't find his target on time. But holy cow, that guy almost ran us out of gas trying. He never, ever quit trying to get to the target. And so – so at the bottom line, the regiment is looking for pilots that are trainable. That's really it. Can we train you to the standard that we uphold? Um, the rest is kind of gravy. But like all the other units, can we train you? And can I live with you in a bee hut in Sharana somewhere for six months at a time too? And not <laughs> one You're kind of making a family. You're not really just taking a pilot job. Um, but once you pass that assessment, you know you go in and. And there's a board, there's a regiment commander, deputy commander, you know, whatever company commanders have agreed. And they're like, hey, you have, you get one of three answers. One, uh, welcome to the regiment. Two, hey, you need some seasoning. We're going to send you back out to the Army. Come back in a year. Or three, thanks for the time. You're going to do great stuff in the Army. 
Those are the only three responses that you get. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's pretty standard. I mean, you get a psyche valve, you get a whole bunch of other stuff and, and that, so I will say that's my only funny story. I have a lot of them in the regiment, but so I'm not the smartest guy. We all, we all know this, Robert. So I go in front of the psyche, had to take this psyche valve and, uh, and he was a funny dude, uh, Dr. Franklin. And he actually came from the unit at one point. And he's like, so how do you think you did on that, uh, that IQ test? I'm like, well, I think I did pretty well. You know, I'm trying to do middle of the road. He goes, yeah, well, it's, no, seriously, how do you think you did? I'm like, well, I think I did okay. Not the best in the class. He's like, hey, dude, how do you think you did on the IQ test? Just tell me flat out. I'm like, I think I did pretty well. He goes, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, you did okay, but you're not going to fly the space shuttle. <laughs> like, all right, well, I guess I got that. <laughs> so when you assess, when you're done with that week-long assessment, um, they tell you, hey, this is the aircraft you're going to fly. You know, either SEP 47 series, Blackhawk series, or uh, H6 series. And then at that point, you all go into what's called, uh, I think it's a month or month and a half of basic skills. And you're flying at a little bird, but basically as a passenger, and all you get, and again, my information may be dated because that was 15 years ago now, but you got a map, a jog, a kneeboard, and a stopwatch. And you were flying with just legendary night stalkers. The guy I trained with was uh, Carl Meyer, which you guys probably remember if you watched the movie Black Hawk Down. One of the guys who dropped that little bird in and picked the two operators up out of the street. Carl Meyer, Billy Cook, like absolute legendary 160th pilots. And so as a W1, you know, I'm kind of nervous flying with these guys. I know squat. I just came out of flight school. And Carl Meyer's a really quiet guy. Billy Cook at the time was kind of cynical. I think he hated me anyway. But <laughs> you know, so, so you've got this map and a stopwatch, and they give you one day to plan it. And they point out a map, you're going to hit this target tomorrow night. And so you sit in your hotel room, and you plan with, you know, at that time, nothing but a protractor and a pencil. And so you tell them, hey, you know, stop turn, decrease five knots, increase 10 knots, whatever. And you, so all you're doing is planning on navigating. You're just practicing your craft to get there plus or minus 30 seconds without any electronic aids. And to my knowledge, they still do that now even though we've got all these massive GPSs and redundant systems. Um, so map, is, map, a compass, and a stopwatch, and you will hit that target plus or minus 30 seconds. And there's a ton of great, great pilots that are never made it to the regiment because they couldn't pass that standard. So you do that for a month, and once you finish basic skills, then everybody splits off. The 47 guys do their 47 green platoon. Little bird guys go to theirs. Blackhawk guys go to theirs. And it lasts, on average, about six months. And then you really learn that machine. You learn everything about it. You learn for the 47 side. I mean, you learn how to fly and start with basic contact stuff, just day traffic patterns, kind of crawl, walk, run. Once you get that done, then you start doing tactics and night vision goggle stuff. And then you move into all your environmentals. You go out and hit the ship decks, go to Albuquerque, start hitting all your desert landing, those 200 foot brownouts that everyone's so fond of, um, your air to air refueling. Um, all your gunnery and all that kind of stuff. And that takes six months. And when you're done with that, you're what they refer to as ready list level one. And you walk from Green Platoon across the street to your company. You walk in, you get beat up, you get hazed, taped up. And then a few days later, you're on a C-17 to Bagram or Balad or something like that. Um, I checked into B Company 2nd Battalion after I got taped up and, you know, had a beach ball taped to my head and all that stuff. Um <laughs> You know, and nine days later, I got off C-17 in Bagram you know, and started doing direct action as a co-pilot. Um, One thing I'll say about, about your unit is uh, it's recently, and probably still, 
they're they're having issues keeping people. I mean, they're having issues with pilots. They're working you guys to death, and uh, guys aren't wanting to do it as much. They're not sticking around as long. But what's good about that is that they're not dropping their standards. You know, yeah. it's still hard to get special people to do special things. You can't just say we need more special operations people. So you guys have kept your standards um, to the detriment of the pilots, really, and, and to your to your readiness. I, I think I don't know if they've stepped it back up a bit or not, and they've gotten more people in now, um, but. Not too many years ago, they were really hurting. Now, to my knowledge, they're still hurting pretty well um, because Army Aviation as a whole is kind of hurting. Uh, it's a little off track, but the airlines are not doing Army Aviation any, any you know, favors. And if there's nobody in RVA, Army Aviation, then there's nobody to draw to or draw from for special operations units. So That's across the board in all services. I mean, Air yep. Force is feeling that pain big time, you know, and the Navy as well. Yeah. But I will say after 14 years, I mean, it's a hard life. But holy cow, is the flying good. And, I, you know, I, I still do some passive recruiting for the regiment. Where I see other Army aviators like, hey, should I do it? I'm like, dude, here's the deal. Um, what you're doing is fabulous. And, and if you just want to fly a Chinook and a Blackhawk around, Fort Campbell, Fort Bragg, whatever, you know, do your thing overseas. I said, I, I'd be proud if my sons did that. I said, but all I know is every single mission that I ever flew overseas mattered. Whether we caught a guy or not, it mattered. You know, people we were going after um, you put them away, you were making a dent in, in somebody's plan. And so try not to be too altruistic about it, but it, it meant something, you know, I was never flying cargo stuff back and forth or doing ring routes or sling loading fuel blivets, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and while I was certainly detached from it being in the cockpit, you know, without getting too dramatic, I'm like, I was dropping <clears> off a of platoon of Rangers and they smoked that entire village of bad guys. Here's the thing you know, is this, you got it. You got us excited. And I can speak too for even the SF guys as well as when we found out we were flying with Brown tonight, <laughs> I got my fast rope gloves. Let's make it happen. Cause we're going to have a nice ride in and a nice ride out period. The end. Yeah. And we so, always had a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of pride in, in, in putting killers on target, you know, absolutely. Like, so not to be dramatic about it, but I'm like, yeah, absolutely, we're going to make these dudes in. And when they start taking, you know, troops in contact, then yeah. they know that we're going to come back in no matter what's going on, mm -hmm. and we're going to get them. No matter yep. what. No That's matter what. what. No matter what. And so, that means something to everybody to know that. Anybody that's flown with you anyway. Um, I don't like to get on any other bird. I, I don't like it. It's usually a big puddle of something on the floor, and the guys look 12, and they don't know what they're doing, and I hated it. That was. I don't like to get in any other bird. And just work with any other group of people. Yeah. Now, yeah. what I will say, Ryan, is uh, most of the time that, uh, for what it's worth, most of the times that I almost got shot down, it was come getting rangers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know what you guys got going on. Wow. Hey, Robert, Robert, I should have worn my T-shirt, man. I uh, told you, you I was going to wear it. You were. Uh, yeah, you were supposed you know, to. I was looking rain. for it. Yeah, there's, rangers. There's every, every SEAL needs a hero. <laughs> One of my famous quotes. <laughs> A 275 guy, Major Fuller, who was hilarious. Okay. Got shot in the neck, but he, uh, <laughs> and lived. But, of course hey, he did. Yeah. On sat. Hey, there's nothing here. Uh, didn't really plan it. We're just moving to the next compound. See what we can scare up. Yeah. We're, we're picking fights. We're picking fights and you're along for the ride. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> hey, you got two hours until sunrise. Yeah. Roger, we're moving. Thanks. Uh-huh. Yep. That sounds like that sounds exactly accurate. <laughs> We're gonna go poke at the bear. We'll be right back. We'll see you. We'll see you when we see you. We'll see you at sunset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this rod it turned into a rod real quick. 
<laughs> so basically uh, what you're saying, those are the favorite rides though, right? The pickups. Yeah. They're They're sporty, I'll tell you the, the, the sportiest targets I ever hit was always with, with Ranger regiment. We had fun. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's two yeah. times, there's two times one sixty has pissed me off. And, uh, <laughs> One was in Somalia doing a little bird ride, and we're just flying around. And I don't know if we were hunting hawks. I don't know what we were doing. But pilot's like, "Hey, you want to do return to target?" I thought I was gonna fall off that pod, man. And uh, you know, basically takes it up until he just stalls. I don't know, and it just flips back down and, and cuts it in. I was like, "Okay." I wanted to grab him and throw him out of the, you know, one of the pilots. I don't know, the left or right side. I was gonna grab somebody and yank him out of there. The other time was in Iraq when Black Hawk got shot down on infill. And uh, it, cra- it, cra- it hard landed about 200, 300 meters away in an open field. I sent the rangers over there to secure it. And um, it was pretty much a hard landing, but it was broke. And I'm thinking, here we go again for Somalia, right? But in the end, I'm going to burn this sucker to the ground, and we're going to get out of here, right? Just like Somalia. And then I h- hear about a dart team. No, no, we're sending in a dart team. And I'm like, what? Come again? You're sending in a what? You know, oh, down to aircraft rescue team. I'm like, what is that? I'm going to burn this sucker and get out of there. Like, no, you're not burning shit. <laughs> cost a lot of money <laughs> I, 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 we burnt one before many more let's i'll burn this one get out of here like no so we sat there for hours and hours flew in some test pilots figured out what on the mechanics and went back and got some parts brought it back put on a new rotor blade flew that thing out had to make emergency landing on the way back to the mss and i'm like oh, here we go you guys are really wanting this thing bad aren't you finally got it back to the mss i'm like all right somebody want to explain to me why i never knew what a dart team was until now <laughs> yeah. now what year was that tom Oh shit! That was uh, ballpark. Two thousand two, two thousand three. Okay. Well, yeah, you got to remember, man. You know how many aircraft we just burned up? Like, ah, that's all right. We'll get more. And then Congress just stopped buying more. So it yeah. got a little. It got a little different. Got like a you're bringing different. that sucker home and the bumper that fell off of it. So. Yeah. So I mean, I'll just round out the one sixtieth part, Robert. That uh, everything that you do every night matters. Um, so I can't really, I can't really speak too bad about my brother now because. I'm I'm a complete uh, bought in the Kool Aid. I'm kind of like jointness oozing out of me now. Um, it's hard, you know. It's you came difficult. to the cool guys club, you know. I mean, yeah. you, you came to the good side. You were on that dark side over there for a period of time, playing around with dolphins and everything. Flipper you crossed over. You crossed if over. You like, if you like flying and fighting, I mean, there's no better there's no better unit in the world for that. Yeah, I mean, that's what they need. They need fighters who just happen to be at, at a set of controls. Well, like you said, one of the best pilots that you had was actually a former Ranger. I think you mentioned on the show. So it was oh. guy I like flying with Mo. Dave Ritchie shot in Somalia as a Ranger private. Oh shit! Yeah, he and I flew together for about five hundred hours or three or four different deployments together. Now you got to imagine that. Now think of that cockpit. And this is one of the other things too. There's a good number of ex-operators flying on one of these cockpits. So whether you're a Ranger assaulter or a unit, you know, CAG guy or a W guy or something like that. You have to feel better when you look up through the companionway. There's a Ranger Regiment guy in the left seat and a seal in the right seat. I mean, you, you have some assurance, at least that there's some sympathy of what's going on, some sense of urgency. Yeah, that at least the Rangers got the stick and we're in good shape, right? Well, truth be told, I was a better pilot than him. But. <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago, I went out to a veteran event called Helicopters for Heroes. They were taking guys up, letting them shoot pigs uh, from helicopters and our pilot was CW4 Greg Coker from the Night Stalkers, and yeah. he's flying Map of the Earth trying to make General Harrell, our guest speaker, puke out of a loach. <laughs> Just up and down. It never leaves you. Crazy Texas. bunch of guys still. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. Man, Robert, I, I just I don't know how you want to round this out, but my my last assignment, um, I, I just I had the opportunity to bring all these guys in and work for me uh, in a location in in the Middle East, and and I think it's for me, I, I just to come to kind of bring it back to where um, where we started. You know, all of our units are tools, and it depends on the mission that you need. And and I, I shouldn't say work for me because Tom's unit didn't work for me there, but we work hand in hand, looking at at, at specific uh, specific target groups together with our assets, and uh, we we, we kind of work very very close together for the ambassador. And I'll give you for example, we had a hostage situation, and we reached directly out to the unit to bring in guys to help train that organization to go in and get those hostages. We had. Um, the, the, the customer asking for helicopter assistance, right? And, and specific attack helicopter assistance that they were going to use. And we brought guys in from the 160th to do that training. We needed guys to do visit board search and seizure. So we went out and got half the SEAL team or half SEAL squad, I think, to come in. And um, or correct me if I'm wrong on the, on the terminology, Mike, but it's either maybe it was a SEAL squad, half a platoon, to come in yeah. and do the VBSS training. Um, we had a maintenance issue with the boats that the U S had fielded in that country. So we brought in, uh, uh, the special boat guys and, and they, they did their part of it. And I think the only people we didn't have was regiment come in during that entire deployment. And I kept an AOB on the ground the entire time. Oh, and, and I think by the time I left, I brought in a MARSOC unit, which I know we don't have them here, but when they set up their training and, and organize those guys, they look very, very much like a special forces ODA and their Q course looks very much like our Q course, because it was run by NEK, by retired Green Berets. Um, and I, I just think that that when we looked at what we had going on in that country, um, we did mission analysis, we determined what the what the customer needed, and we brought in, I, I think, the right guys to do the training to, to provide that for them. And, and, you know, from my perspective, as a force multiplier and, you know, to build partner capacity, that's the tool that we needed to use to bring in and, and, and do it. So that's how I kind of look at all of us as um, – you know, to round it out, the right tool yeah. for the right job. Yeah. Yeah. I think my closing statement is, uh, I know we all agree is when guys are listening that there is no better or worse. I think everybody just needs to realize it's the same dudes in different uniforms. Yeah. And that's, that's the big yep. part. Um, yep. just trained for a different job. That's, that's what I've gotten from my 30 years in the military perspective is it's the exact same guys. I would I would hang out and get along with any one of them. Everybody's just doing different jobs. And when you realize that, um, it's a much more easily flowing machine. Some are just better better looking than others, right? Some of us are. It's just it's just the way it is. <laughs>